These days, we are all hearing repeated so often that we are in a heightened state of alert. Of course, the media connotation denotes that of fear and fragility, terrorism and trauma. But is this what we really need to be alert to? And is there another underlying cause for all the tumult and evil in this world? Paul Levy, an author, gifted artist, philosopher, teacher, and self-described wounded healer, is one who has tackled this very complex question. And the answer he gives may just surprise you. In this very important dialogue about the dynamics of what he calls a collective psychosis that is plaguing humanity, Paul feels that when we acknowledge that we all play some part in this drama or dream, we will begin the process of healing this virus of the mind. This interview may be challenging for some of you to hear, and for others, it may just be the antidote that you've long been searching for. As always, only you can decide. So take a listen now to my interview with Paul Levy. Paul, you know, you've hit a nerve with many of us who've come into contact with your great work, including me. It was one of your articles that I recently stumbled upon that caught my attention immediately. The article, uh, by the way, was reposted on the ConsciousLifeNews.com website, of which I'm affiliated. And the title that was used in this case was simply Collective Psychosis, The Greatest Sickness Epidemic of Humanity. That headline caught my attention immediately, as well, well as many other readers. Something about it just sounded familiar to me. So I then went to the website where the article was originally posted, I think about five years ago, on realitysandwich.com, and I read the entire two-part article. And, you know, at that point, I had to contact you to have you on the show. Let me say, Paul, you have shed light on this issue of what has been called collective psychosis like no one I've ever heard. So if you would, tell us what got you on this path of discovery, what, of what is called, what you've called also malignant egophrenia, or as one indigenous culture has termed it, Wetiko. Sure. Um, well, how I came to it was, it was based on my own personal experience in that it wound up that my father was a really sick guy, Mm-hmm. And um, but he wasn't he wasn't diagnosed and um, and all that and I was the only child who was also very sensitive and I was the re- I was the recipient of his, his him acting out his abuse and it basically just in essence it created enormous suffering for me mm-hmm. so you know this was when I was in my early twenties as I was individuating and separating from the family and so it really put me at a crossroads where I could have just. Um, become this really um, dysfunctional person, or I could have, um, you know, inquired into my experience, my internal experience, and going inside of my own mind, and that's what I chose to do. And you know, that's my whole, the whole, the the entire like, um, you know, course of my life, so to speak, became changed from that point on. Mm-hmm. And and then at a certain point, I real I, what I realized was that wow, there's some sort of um, this illness whose origin is in the psyche that was explicating itself in, in, through the field, through the entire um, this this non-local field that was operating in my family and in the field surrounding us. And then I recognized, oh, that's the exact same illness that's operating in the greater body politic of the world, you know. Um, so that the actual you know, my personal um, sort of um, this this example that I was living was getting reflected through the macrocosm, and that really opened opened me up to a whole 
you know, to a deeper investigation. That's quite a story, uh, Paul, that you told. And I've heard you actually tell that story uh, before. And, and of course, very courageous of you to share something so intimate and personal, and yet so important, I think, because when you share uh, how tribulation ha- has been used um, uh, to to learn uh, how tumult can be a teacher, and perhaps that's indicative of what Watiko. What we're going to get into about Watiko. So mm-hmm. again, I, I applaud you for that. Uh, mm-hmm. So so let's get into because people may be saying, well, what on earth is she talking about, Watiko? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why don't you give us a little thumbnail of what that's all about, where that came from? Sure, sure. So um, it's 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 this Native American term that connotes the spirit of evil, and um, so all that I'm doing, I'm just a translator. And it's not just the Native Americans. I mean, every tradition that's based in in spiritual wisdom or understanding has its own symbol system for pointing out Watiko and calls it by different names. Um, and the the idea is is that the origin is in the psyche. Mm-hmm. It's not something objective or external to us, and um, it operates through the psyche, as well as having the origin in the psyche, and it operates through the unconscious, through the, the parts of us that, are, that have blind spots, in such a way that we then unwittingly become the instrument to act it out in the world, and at the same time, it hides itself from being seen, so we're not aware that mm-hmm. we unwittingly become its instrument. And um, so it's actually this, this, you could think of it as sort of the psychological form of being blind, like this blindness of the mind um, in which people who are afflicted with it actually believe that they're seeing clearly. And not only that, but they believe that they're more, that they're seeing more clearly than people who are actually clear-sighted. And um, one other way of describing it is that um, it operates through the, the... part of us that projects, we're always projecting onto the inkblot of the waking dream, so to speak, but it operates through the projective tendencies of the mind in such a way that we then think that our projections actually exist outside of ourselves, and then we react to, the, to our projections, becoming conditioned by, the, by our own energy, and we become entranced through that whole process. So what it does it actually taps into our the, the part of us that actually is a co-creator of our experience in such a way that it turns that that gift in ourselves to be these geniuses of creating our reality in a way it turns it turns it against us mm-hmm. in a way that we become imprisoned by our own genius. So that's a real thumbnail sketch of, of Watiko. Mm-hmm. And of course I could say like a lot more, I've written a whole book about it. But that's just the, the really the simplest introduction. I think that was a, a great summation of what it is, um, and and as always, very articulate. That's there's a lot there, a lot of dimensions to, to what you just said in, in such a short period of time. But I'm gonna I'm gonna quote you on something. You've said that Watiko is a quote a misidentification of who we imagine who we are. So the key I would say, Paul, here is imagine. Mm-hmm. The role that imagination and creati- creativity play. So, if you could elaborate on that a little bit, that philosophy, that would oh, be great. Well, it's all based on on not just the idea, but the actual fact that the the creative imagination is fundamental to our experience, to how we experience, you know, the outside world, and how we experience ourselves. And so, what what Tico does, and the way to think about what Tico, it's sort of like um, this, almost like when you get like some sort of bug, and you have like you know you get like some sort of like 
like whether it's a virus, it's like a virus of the mind. And it, it, it plugs into our, to our imagination, to our creativity in such a way that, like I was saying, it turns it against ourselves. And what it does, it's a shape-shifting sort of entity that will shape-shift and it'll assume our form. It'll imitate us. It'll put us on in such a way which putting us on has a double meaning, like putting us on like a suit of clothes, but also putting us on means that, you know, we get fooled. And if we then identify with its image of who we are, so it, it'll ape us, it'll, it'll be like this mime, it'll mimic us and imitate us and impersonate us, and if we then identify with its version of ourselves, we then, um, in a sense, disconnected from our own intrinsic, from our true self, and we've given it away to this seemingly other entity that actually doesn't even exist. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of like that whole process I really go into, but it works through the imaginative faculty of, of, of us, of our minds. Mm-hmm. What do you suppose... Assuming you know everything has a beginning and and maybe maybe not or an ending maybe not, when do you think if there was a period of time that Wetiko embedded itself in the collective unconscious of humankind? You know, and that's a discussion I actually go into in the book um, where I, I talk about there are all these theories like some people talk about oh well clearly you know I mean in in different sort of like these mythologies they'll talk about there's a fall of mankind or whether some sort of external force, you know, did it, did an intervention, you know, to, you know, to really, um, whatever in this negative way with reference to our evolution. But the point I make is that the thing about Watiko is that it's getting created in this moment where we are co-creating it, all of us, not just you and me, but 7 billion of us humans it's a phenomena. It's this. It's a you know. It's a phenomena that we're all co-creating, or not, every moment. And so that I think is the is the essential thing that it's something that's available to us that we're actually participating in the co-creation of right now. Mm-hmm. I think uh, that that's yeah. I I can understand that. You know the the. Well, I want to get into Young, of course, because you are a fantastic student, and I would say a scholar of Young. But here's something that came to me as, again, I was reading some of your some of your great work. An- another point from um, an article that I read that caught my attention is that um, uh, it, it talks about this self-creation dynamic. Uh, you say, and I'm, I'm, this is an article, by the way, people, that has not come out for publication yet. Little teaser here, but I want to base a lot of what we're going to be talking about in, on this article. It's, it's brilliant. Um, but I'm going to quote from it. You say, it is as if we have become possessed by a self-created Frankenstein monster that mm. is running amok. Now, I want to bring something up to you and see if, this, if, if you have any, um, uh, any understanding of this term. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of another, Paul, a very strange and yet very well-documented phenomenon called the tulpa. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, 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 totally. Okay, all yeah. right. And for those that don't know, a tulpa is, I, I would call it a literal throw-off of one's own consciousness that has the ability to become manifest as a separate and yet a connected entity. And by the way, the tulpa uh, I became familiar with 
uh, by way of our mutual colleague, Neil Kramer, who's talked about it in his own work. Mm-hmm. But uh, it is a dynamic that is well known in some circles of uh, old Tibetan Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are the correlations there? I found that also very intriguing. Yeah, well, what it makes me think of is like, so on the one hand, indigenous people would, would talk about, oh, there are these negative entities like a demon or something like that. Where in psychology, they would talk about what, what they refer to as demons would be the phrase an autonomous complex. Mm. It's a part of the wholeness of our psyche that whether it's based on some form of trauma or whatever, we split off, that wholeness splits off, and, and it'll, it'll develop over the course of time um, some form of seemingly autonomous other quality where it'll appear as if or will experience as if it's something other than ourselves and the autonomy will be so complete at a certain point it'll appear as if it has an actual intention that's other than our own intention it'll appear as if it'll have a mind or a life of its own that's separate from ourselves and that's an expression of the extent of how split off we are from that aspect of ourselves. And what I'm describing as being an autonomous complex, that's analogous to the, to the tulpa idea in Tibetan Buddhism, and that's also what indigenous people call a demon. Mm-hmm. But the, the point that I'm making is that, yeah, on like certain levels, of course you have to honor them as like some other, you know, they, they, because they manifest from our subjective experience as being other we have to honor that, and that's how we need to have to have some form of being able to relate to them as some form of other. But ultimately, the ultimate point of view is that they're not separate from our own nature. Mm-hmm. And it's when you see that, that that's when you can really begin to integrate them into the wholeness of who we are. Right. Well, you know what that reminds me of immediately? One of my favorites, uh, philosopher and late physicist David Baum, and his description of autonomous subtotals. We are autonomous subtotals. I talk, I quote exactly that phrase in the physics book. Yeah, yeah, David Baum is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, he was just really switched on to this. Absolutely. And the point is, we become entranced because they will manifest as so convincingly as seemingly other it's just like when you're in a dream and there's like a demon in the dream and you don't know you're dreaming, you're going to be running away or scared or reacting to that energy. But in the ultimate sense, what is that dream? In the ultimate sense, it's nothing other than your own energy just projected out as the dream. Mm-hmm. And, and to have that realization, that's to have lucidity, that's to wake up to the dreamlike nature. And I'm basically pointing out in my work that that same situation is available to us in the waking dream, that what we're thinking as being outside of ourselves, you know, in the form of the, the whole objective world, this seemingly objective world, that similar to a dream where you can have lucidity and, and recognize, oh, it's actually a reflection of my internal, what's going on inside of me, the same thing in our waking dream. We, we can have that exact same understanding. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, you know, I just want to make sure for the audience that you are all sort of understanding. This is a very complex and a very important discussion, I think, that we're having. I couldn't wait to have you on because I think it's so needed right now. But just I want to make sure our audience understands what we're talking about, what this is, how pervasive it is, and what responsibility we all take. So we're going to dig into that. So basically, just in sum, we're talking about what what has been called a virus of the mind, a sickness of the mind, that is uh, somewhat embedded in the collective psyche that we all play a part in. It has a shadow aspect. Uh, It is, you know, I suppose if you're looking at all of reality as we 
see it or, or participate in it as a dream. You know, these are very esoteric concepts, but fortunately we have an audience, I think, that's really tuned into that. But it is complex, so I want to make sure that people understand exactly what you're laying out in your thesis. Um, because, again, there's some points that um, sure. that I think need to be elaborated on. So, yeah. can, I, can I just clarify one thing? Please, because, yes. Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the really the underlying point of view that I'm coming from, and, you know, and I began having these, these experiences, you know, like 30 years ago or something, <laughs> was that... Um, we're having a collective shared dream right now that we're all, you know, um, we're the dreamers of the dream, but and we're 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 collaboratively dreaming up this world together. And what that means is that what's happening in the seemingly outer world is actually a reflection of what's happening inside of us. And the thing about the Watiko virus is that it's a collective psychosis. Mm-hmm. So that's important because what I'm pointing at is that there's a collective psychosis that's that's endemic, that's running rampant in the greater body politic of the world. But we've become so kind of, you know, we, we're under almost like an anesthesia, like we've become like sort of numb to the incredible insanity that we that we're playing out that we're, we're destroying the biosphere which is the support system the life support system of our species we're actively destroying it and so in in that new article that you made reference to that's not quite out yet i i point out that you know if these alien if like an enlightened alien mm. looked sort of objectively from outside the system but what we were doing they would be scratching their head going, why is the most intelligent species that's ever, that's ever emerged on planet Earth, why are they actively committing collective suicide? And so the thing I'm saying is that that process, as it's playing out in the world, is actually reflecting a deep, unconscious inner process that's happening within our psyche, and it behooves us to recognize that. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Well, I was just going to say, again, you know, we're talking about a great deal of people, particularly in the alternative community, who are starting to dig in, you know, kick the tires, look under the hood of what's really going on in terms of what we call conspiracy. Yes, I said the word. Um, and they may be saying, wait a minute, I'm not the one with the psychosis here. It's these evildoers, you know. It, it, it's, so I'm going to say this. It, it, so to them it may seem that Watiko ha- has an instigator that lives outside of the borders of humanity, that this psychosis is happening to us rather than by us, by those who uh, wish harm on humanity. Um, so, again, I think it's important for people to understand that um, it, it's – it can project itself. I'm not, by all means, condoning those that do wish harm on humanity because I believe that there are. But mm-hmm. uh, at the same time, it can, even those characters may be used as sort of archetypes to reflect back to us something that's coming from within us in order to shift it. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that totally. And, and like what that brings up for me, the thing about Watiko that makes it so one of a kind, it's an inner disease of the soul that actually expresses itself it somehow is able to collapse the boundary between the inner and the outer so it's an inner disease of the soul that is able to configure events in the outside world so as to express itself through the medium of the outside world in a synchronistic fashion and it's when any of us begins to have the recognition of that correlation between the outer and the inner oh, what's happening in the outer world is symbolizing something that's happening in me, 
you know, and that's just like a dream, because when you think about a dream, what is a dream? The outer forms of the dream are actually an expression of the psyche of the dreamer. They're not separate. And so the thing I'm saying is that, you know, one of the major ways of seeing Watiko is to see what I call the dreamlike nature of reality. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think you know, and, 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 and that, by the way, is the major insight of quantum physics. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why I, I just wrote this whole book about that, that when you really distill what is the, the essence of what this, and, you know, we all know, oh, quantum physics is the, supposedly this amazing thing. Well, what, what is it that it's actually tapping into? And what, you know, I mean, they'll talk about, they'll say, oh, yeah, we've, we've proven empirically beyond a shadow of doubt that it, it, there's no such thing as an objective, you know, this, this world outside of us. It makes no sense to even talk about something objective outside of us, that the act of observing the universe actually evokes the universe observed, that the observer is the observed, that's a description of the dream. Mm-hmm. It's very quantum in its implications. And, and yep. speaking of which, I want to talk about someone who you are, I, I, again, I say a student of, but I would also say, a, you are a student of, but I would also say a scholar of, and that's uh, the great psychologist and mystic, I think we all know he was, Carl Gustav Jung. Mm-hmm. Um so I want to just, I, I, when, after I read your piece, Paul, I went into my collection of young, Jungian books, and one of them, the first thing that came to mind is On the Nature of the Psyche, that essay that he wrote that is, that is so phenomenal and has so many hallmarks of the, the thesis that you're putting forward. He, he talks about what he called a sort of semen paradox, saying that uh, the psyche is both conscious and unconscious at the same time. He says, quote, the psyche is a conscious slash con- unconscious whole. And this, of course, has a very holographic as well as quantum implications, that being sort of likened to the way of particle duality structure of reality, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And the thing about the psyche, I mean, it's a totality that includes both the conscious and the unconscious. Mm -hmm. And the point is, is to have that that the boundary between the two be really fluid and, and permeable so that contents can pass back and forth between the two as compared to people who are really you know, more identified with their, like, their conscious ego, and then they're split off from the unconscious, which then acts itself out through them in the form of whether they just act out their unconscious, unhealed behavior, you know, or just in different symptoms. So the idea is, is to develop some form of some kind of, you know, relationship or dialogue between those two, definitely. You know, and, and the thing the thing I'm saying is that when I talk about that, the way to see Watiko is to see, you know, this being some form of dream, of dreamlike nature, um, this this world we live in, is that well, what is the language of dreams? And it, it speaks in symbols, symbols, right? You know, and and so the thing, you know, and, and the thing with Young, he spent his whole career fighting to try to bring back symbolic awareness. And what he was meaning was to see that this universe is an oracle and it's speaking in the language of symbols. Mm -hmm. And that when we see that, and the same thing, you know, just think about your night dream. You have a night dream, you wake up, you ask yourself, oh, how would I interpret that? What does it mean? What what symbols are in it? What parts of myself are, are appearing? Well, the same perspective, we can interpret our, you know, our experience in our life in that same way and the thing which is interesting is that the more we establish ourselves in that viewpoint of seeing symbolically the more the universe will then manifest symbolically because it's not out there it's a reflection of our own mind 
That's where yeah. we really get into this uh, synchronicity and the implications of that, which I, the exactly. audience knows. I'm a huge fan of synchronicity, which is based, uh, predicated on sim- symbolism, on symbology. The subjective, though, I think. Don't you? I think that a lot of the symbols that we choose to interpret are uh, designed exquisitely for the individual. Yeah, well, the thing is, is that, and I talk about this in my book, that symbols don't exist objectively, separate from the mind that's observing them. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like there's this cooperation between the, you know, the psyche, and then the symbol will come seemingly outside of ourselves, be it in a night dream or the waking dream, but that symbol is tailor-suited to exactly where we're at in our psyche. And then as soon as we take in that symbol and understand it to whatever degree we do, then the symbol changes to reflect our new understanding. So it's a, it's a, it's a, continual, it's a continual sort of going, you know, this, this back and forth between the psyche and the symbols that emerge out of it. And the whole idea, and I, I talk about this, is that the, the, real, the, the whole point of that is to help us to wake up. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about that, the, the symbol, the symbolic, well, I say symbology or symbols as a language and how people, Paul, I think are starting to become more sensitive to symbols like numbers. You know, what just popped into my mind, 1111. Mm-hmm. 11. I mm-hmm. have been trying my level best to get, to get to the bottom of it. I don't know that there is a bottom. I think the rabbit hole gets, uh, it's infinitely deep. But the fact that this, uh, this, what would you call it? Burgeoning. It's more than a trend. More and more people are st- seeing 11 or, or, you know, variations of. Mm. And there is obviously something quite synchronistic and, and important going on. Let's talk about that. Let's veer off for a minute. What are your thoughts? You know what I'm talking about, right? With yeah, this totally. phenomenon. Yeah. How would that play into this thesis that we're putting together here, if at all? Yeah, well, I would, what I would say is like, okay, an example. Say if I, you know, if there's something that I want to bring tomorrow to the cafe and that's, that's home and I don't want to forget to bring it. Well, I'll, I might put like something, I'll, I might put an object in front of my front door. So when I leave tomorrow morning, I'll see the object and it'll, oh yeah, I need to bring that thing. It'll help to remind me. Mm-hmm. So if you just look at that, it's like in this moment, I'm actually, planting something in the fabric of the waking dream for a future self to find and once i find it in that you know in that future it's going to remind me of something that i need to remember well what what you're talking about is that what about if there's this deeper part of us that's the dreamer of the dream and it plants into the fabric of our life these clues during the course of our life to help us to remember to help us to wake up and the idea that whether so many people see, they look at the clock and it's eleven eleven. I mean, that definitely happens to me a lot. Mm. You know, that could be one of the, these these signals or these these clues or these you know a stimulator for our lucidity that the deeper part of us have planted in the in the waking dream, and you know, and we're you know when we're faded at exactly the right moment to come across those particular clues or these these signals. To help us to remember something, so that's hmm. that's kind of what it brings up for me. Sure, me too. But then the, the the billion dollar question is, what is the significance of that number and what it's trying to get us to remember? And I'm not necessarily asking you to answer it unless you have some thoughts uh, on it. I yeah, no, no, I I have no idea. I don't know. I mean, that's you know, just like any symbol, it's subjective. But the thing, if I can just say something about symbols, that's really interesting because going back to Watiko, the thing about Watiko 
it it really it inspires the deepest evil that our species is capable of. So in a way, it has this this diabolic energy to it. And etymologically, diabolic mm. means that which separates and creates division. Now, the antonym for diabolic is symbolic, and symbolic is that which brings together. So it's interesting. You have like two two things that are typically conceived of as being opposites. Like like a perfect example is Christ. Christ, on the one hand, he's the son of God, right? So he's supposedly an embodiment of, of, of God, and yet he's a human being. So he's things which are normally conceived of as being totally opposite, co-joined into a symbol. And Christ himself, in the apocryphal text, is actually instructing his disciples to see him that way, to see him symbolically. And so I, I just find it interesting that the actual antidote to the, to the diabolic is the symbolic, and symbols of the language of dreams. And what that's pointing at is that the way really for us to, to, to get a handle on our world crisis is to begin to see the nature of our situation, which is this is some form of collective dream that we're having. And that's not any sort of theory. Like the Buddha was saying himself, please don't take my word for it. Do the inquiry yourself. Mm. See what I'm saying is true. And that's all. I'm saying the same thing. I'm just saying, hey, look, there are ways we can inquire into the present moment nature of our experience that will actually show us the dreamlike nature. Mm-hmm. And, and I agree with you, but here's the conundrum, Paul, and that is, and this perhaps is indicative of the diabolical nature of this that we call Watiko, and that is this also what seems to be this collective complacency and you know this isn't you're making an ask here we're all making that ask of each other look into it but the people seem to be so for a lot of reasons and some of them are justifiable stressed out dealing with everyday reality that they wouldn't even think to uh to look into it uh or, or don't have the time to look into it and still others don't even know this dynamic exists they've never tuned in or intuited it to know that it can be explored that right. in and of itself to me is a hallmark in a way of Wadiko. yeah 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 that's exactly it that's that's the the extent of the collective psychosis that so many people just don't have time or energy or don't even have a clue that there's anything out of ordinary that's going on but what that makes me think of is that for the people maybe like the two of us and and other people who are tuning into it and who are tapping into it, that there's a responsibility that we have to mm-hmm. find our creative voice because it goes back to what you were saying about being creative, that one of, one of the antidotes for Watiko is creativity because it, it actually plugs into our own creativity in such a way because it has no creativity of its own. But then it can piggyback on our creativity and plug into our creativity in a way where then... We it will it will turn us will will then express our creativity to serve it. So the point is is that when any of us really tap into our own creativity, which etymologically has to do with finding one's voice and genius and calling and vocation, all of those words have to do um, with creativity. And also etymologically, it has to do with the word. Daimon. Ah, I'm so glad you brought that up. Yes. And Daimon is the guiding spirit, is the inner voice. And the point is, is that if we, so, so many people, we all have a Daimon, an inner voice, but most of us 
we just we just ignore it or we 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 you know have all these excuses why we can't follow it or listen to it and then that daimon consolates negatively and becomes a demon mm -hmm. but if we honor that daimon then we find our, um the calling the genius the inner guide the guiding spirit the vocation all of those things come along with it and all that's needed is for us to actually develop relationship with the diamond and that then will help us access our creative spirit which will heal us and as more and more of us do that we actually can be healing agents for the planet uh-huh i want to i want to piggyback on i'm so glad you brought up the diamond diamond <laughs> aspect because i've heard you speak about this and you've actually said that uh, in this mode of being the guiding spirit the diamond uh, uh, we can dream a whole new dream. But I yep. want to bring up something. Let's see if you resonate with this, Paul. This, okay, is, this sure. is my mind just sort of going out on a, on a <laughs> out into the cosmos. Sure, sure. I was thinking about this whole idea of diamond, and it's spelled D-A-E-M-O-N. And here's what occurred to me. When you take the A out of daemon, you have, as you mentioned, demon. Now, in a metaphorical way to me, extracting the A out of daemon is to extract the alpha. And when you look at the various meanings of alpha, I looked it up, you know, just specifically what it said. Alpha is defined as the first, the beginning, but it's also in astronomy referred to designate the brightest star in a constellation, ergo the guiding spirit. So when mm -hmm. you take that alpha out, that A out of Damon, that's when trouble starts. The, bri the, the, the brightest star in the constellation goes out. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, no, totally. That totally does. And um, yeah, and it's funny because just, you know, what that brings up for me is, and I talk about this, you know, in my book, is that the thing about um, sort of like when you think about Watiko, it can't, it can't steal our soul, but it can trick us into giving it away. So in a sense, we're in possession of like, you know, this treasure that's hard to attain or the Holy Grail, like the highest value. There are all these, these different phrases for it. But what Watiko does, it somehow inspires us to forget it, to have like this amnesia and then to sort of project our own genius outside of ourselves. And, and it's very much having to do with what you're saying. When we take out that alpha from the daimon, then what we're left with is like this negative spirit. You know, which we then unwittingly, you see, the thing about that is then we unwittingly become taken over by it and become an instrument so that it can act itself out through us. And all the while, we have no idea that that's happening. We can easily feel, gee, I've never felt, you know, I feel so in touch with myself. And yet, that's the way it works when we become possessed by an archetypal energy that we don't know we're possessed by it. Mm hmm well, I know you've talked about many times, this is something I definitely want us to elaborate on a little bit, is uh, let's say people listening right now are, are understanding that the fundamentals of how we're describing what Tico is, this, this virus of the psyche, and yet they're seeing it in other people, but not necessarily taking the responsibility of owning it themselves. It reminds me of a, a Shakespearean phrase that comes from the play uh, Julius, Ce uh, Julius Caesar that I find so apropos in this regard. And it's one that Dan Rather used when he, he was recently on my show, and he used it. And it says, the fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. We, you, me, others are keeping Watiko alive. Talk yeah. about that, if you will, yeah, yeah. how an understanding the yeah. true nature of Watiko and getting yeah. on the road to healing that, that one must admit they too have it. 
Right. I so appreciate you bringing that up because the thing about Watiko, it feeds off of fear and, and otherness. So if we think, for example, that they out there, whoever the they is, have Watiko and we don't, mm. we've then fallen under its thrall because we're then feeding the polarization that's in the field. The idea being that Watiko, it's an illness that in, that it's in the collective unconscious and that means we all have it in potential at any moment and so then if we see somebody out there having it yeah we might be seeing something and guess what if this is a dream there are dream character mm-hmm. where we're looking in a mirror and they're reflecting if they're possessed by Watiko at that moment and acting something out that's really hurtful and evil well guess what being a dream character they're reflecting that part of ourselves and so then when you begin to see that, it actually cultivates like this compassion, you know. And so I just, you know, that whole idea that if we otherize anybody else and project our own shadow outside of ourselves, then we're actually unwittingly an agent for, for Watiko. Brilliant. I've heard you say that, uh, and that, again, struck a chord with me. I gotta, I'll tell you a little story about how, although I wasn't referring to it as Watiko at the time, we could call it ego, I suppose, or some uh, very demonic aspect of it. And we all have it. You know, we've got to admit we all have it. And I'm very sensitive about that. And, I, and I'll make this very brief, but I remember um, when I started to truly understand how pervasive, and again, I'm looking at it as ego, how pervasive ego is in today's society and probably has been since the dawn of mankind, I recall, uh, Paul, being at um, a, 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 an event, a, a friend's gathering with a lot of people, and mm-hmm. one of our close friends uh, had come to the event and made this massive announcement about this big opportunity that he just got, and this particular person, you know, can tend to be a little outspoken and likes a lot mm-hmm. of attention, and immediately I got enraged by it, get in, with inside saying, okay, this person's doing what they typically do, and um, meanwhile... The same day or day after, we had some big news that we were uh, about to announce, and, and I, I felt like the person was overshadowing me, and so I chimed mm-hmm. in and said, well, we've got blah, blah, blah going on. And, you know, I went home, and I said, what did I just do? Mm-hmm. Uh, what did I just do? Now, here I am accusing this person of being an egomaniac, and I'm doing the same thing. Do you know that that was my epiphany, that I've got work to do here? Why did I do that? I felt horrible. And although I was somewhat diplomatic, you know, at the time, I knew where it was coming from. I knew it was coming from a shadow aspect of myself. And it was at that point that I resolved to explore this. So um, I I like to think of that perhaps as the road to, and I don't consider myself an overly egotistic person, but we all have a tinge of it. Some people more than others, right? Totally, totally. And the thing, you see, no, I so appreciate that example because the the Watiko virus it's this it's this non-local energy, so it's not bound in third-dimensional space and time. And what that means, as an example, is that if, if it all of a sudden, you know, if it manifests through somebody else, like, say, through that person who's making that announcement, the, the non-local aspect, we then will react, we'll get triggered in our mm-hmm. mind. And then if we don't metabolize what's triggered in ourselves, but if we then just in that moment just act it out, it's like, we, it's, like it's become contagious. We then become a vector for the propagation of the disease in our unconscious reactivity, you see? So, and that's where the thing about Watiko being a collective psychosis, yeah, it can take over one particular person and they could act it out in their life, but for it to really, to replicate itself through the field, it needs masses of people, you, you know? And so it feeds keeping in mind, 
it feeds off the unconscious and into the unconscious through the blind spots. And so just think about that example. Like, here's this person making an announcement, and maybe he's coming from, a, you know, this egoic place. So then it triggers in other people their egoic reactions. And then all of a sudden, the whole field, mm. you know, there's like this psychic epidemic throughout the field. And that's what Tico, it's a collective psychosis. Very, very, that is clear. That is absolutely clear. Well, speaking of collective, we, look, we've got to talk about the collective psychosis, where we stand today. We're recording this on July 25th, 2016. There is just so much going on, Paul, in terms of the escalation of what we'll call Wetiko. What's happening here? Are we on the precipice of just a complete paradigm shift? Is there a gift in this insanity? Because it certainly is insane right now. Right, right. No, and that that's a great question, too, because the way to think about well, the way I think about it that I, I hope can be helpful is when you have a dream and there's something unconscious, something in our shadows that are being shown to us in the dream. Well, you know, if we don't understand the message, well, guess what? That dream is going to recur and that shadow element is even going to be more amplified. And then, you know, ad infinitum, it will just become a recurring dream until we finally get the message. And getting the message is to see, oh, yeah, it's reflecting something inside of me that I need to, like, understand or expand my consciousness. And um, so it's very much like that. But the thing about Watiko, you see, that's so amazing. Here it is, the deepest, darkest, it's, it's like the most evil energy that our species is possibly capable of, that Watiko informs that and inspires that, and superposed in that same entity of Watiko is an incredible, this blessing and this gift. Mm-hmm. And not only does it contain its own medicine, but it actually has a gift for us in that Watiko can actually help us, it can show us the dreamlike nature of reality, which is to say it can help us to remember who we are and to wake up which we wouldn't have done without Watiko's manifestation. So that's really interesting, because that brings up a whole question. Oh, well, is Watiko this, this deepest, darkest evil, or is it the highest good? Mm. Well, it seems to be in alchemy, they talk about the, the coincidence of, of opposites. And it actually contains both, both the deepest, darkest evil and the highest sublime sacred divinity superposed in one particular energy, and how it manifests same thing within quantum physics. How does light manifest? Well, it's a wave or a particle. It depends how we observe it. The same thing with Watiko. Will it manifest in this evil, destructive way or in this incredibly, like, this liberating way? It depends how we dream it. Right. The focus that we choose to take, the purview. Yeah. Um, wow, that is so powerful. I, that that is really powerful, and you you and I were talking offline just before we we started the show, and I had uh, again been familiar with your sort of thesis on this part of it, and I thought, well, gee, that's so homeopathic in in a way that it is uh, the, the 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 cure is within the virus in a way. Yeah, totally, and that right? and I said to you that that's that's a metaphor that I use in my book. The idea being that, yeah, we have to, you know, just like with homeopathy, you take in a little bit of the poison to stimulate the, the immune response. In the same thing, we have to contemplate Watiko, and we have to shed light on the darkness and see how it operates both out in the world and in our complicity, it's how right. it operates within our own psyches. And by taking in that, that darkness in ourselves homeopathically, that then will activate, like, you know, that will, will act, like I was saying, you know, whether it's the immune response 
or, or the, 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 this deeper medicine, this gift that's encoded in the virus will then start to reveal itself. But it'll only do that if we recognize what it's showing us. Right, right. Well, you, you say know? taking it in, but in, I think in this case, really just acknowledging that it's already within, but it, but openly, consciously accepting yeah. that and in, in taking it in. Yeah, 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 yeah. And taking responsibility Take- for our own darkness. Because the thing is, when we don't take responsibility for our own darkness and we project out the shadow, then being like a dream then we're going to find all the evidence. People are then going to, going to be carrying our, our projection, our shadow projection, and they're going to be embodying the projection and acting that in front of our eyes, and then we have all the evidence we need. Oh, well, the evil really is out there, which entrenches us even further in the viewpoint of projecting the shadow even more, and it becomes an infinitely self-perpetuating feedback loop. And, um, but you know, if, you see, if you see that process and you see, wait a second, that darkness, that evil that I'm seeing outside of myself, it's actually a reflection of my own darkness, right. of how I'm, I'm complicit in evil. Then all of a sudden, you, you like take back your shadow projection, and you take responsibility for your own darkness, and then you're not offering yourself as food for the Watiko virus. Mm-hmm. Taking responsibility. And again, you know, this, this, is a, this is a very, this whole discussion and this whole idea, Paul, is very, it's, to me, perennial philosophy. Oh, totally. You know, we've, we've heard, you know, other variations of the same sort of construct before that, you know, the people that annoy us the most are really mirrors of some unconscious aspect that we're trying to heal. I mm-hmm. remember reading that many, many years ago. Um, and yet, and I think there are a lot of people that are aware of some semblance of that message, and yet there's so many, and I, again, I look at people today, not all, but far too many, who are unwilling to take responsibility, first of all, unwilling to even see that they have that aspect in themselves, uh, being so anxious to place blame outside of themselves, that's something I think that's been cultivated, mm-hmm. um, and, and continuing to spread the virus unwittingly, uh, you know, I just did a little, I do a segment called Conscious Commentary um, twice a month where I just kind of weigh in on some of these more philosophical issues. And the thing I just did was on forgiveness, the frequency, not just the feeling of it, but the frequency of forgiveness and all of those things that can solve some of these things or acceptance, responsibility. Still, there's so many people that are uh, just not tuned in that way. What do we do? Yeah. Oh, well, no, I know. Well, what do we do? I mean, you see, that's really interesting because, I mean, it makes me think of, like, there are some really, you know, well-intentioned, these, these people who are interested in, in real and being spiritual, and, and then I'll come in and I'll mention, I'll mention, like, the idea of, oh, you know, evil and Watiko, and they just run out the door screaming. They just, oh, no, we don't want to look at that. We don't want to mm-hmm. think about that. We just want to affirm the light. And it's, it's really interesting because in them doing that, by them having an avoidance of dealing with the darkness, they're unwittingly giving the darkness power over Absolutely. them, yeah. you know? And, you know, the thing I point out is that if you become too fascinated by the darkness, then you're feeding it too. But the idea of actually seeing how it works, like seeing the, the covert, op, op, you know, psychological operations of evil through our minds and through how it operates in the field, in the world, and then when you see that, then as a sovereign being, you have a choice of, oh, well, okay, I see you, and now I'm choosing that I don't want to invest my attention in you anymore in the darkness. I now want to invest the, my attention in creating the world I want to live in. Mm-hmm. That's what's available to us. Mm-hmm. You know, and particularly when you connect with other people who are also beginning to wake up to that level of realization, what you discover is that you, you can actually put 
your it's what I call the sacred power of dreaming. You can put our sacred power of dreaming together to change the dream, and that's evolutionary, and that's what this is all about. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, of course, I go into that a whole lot in my book. But that's what that's that's sort of the gift. That's what's being offered to us through the Watiko epidemic. By the way, audience, this book that he's speaking of, I'm holding in my hot little hands right now. It is called Dispelling Watiko, Breaking the Curse of Evil. And this is a pretty meaty book, very comprehensive. We're talking, oh, I can't see too well, four or five hundred, no, much more, much, no, about 400 pages. There's a lot of mm-hmm. good reading material here, and this is not your only book. We're going to have you plug that a little bit more later. But yes, you know, what I was going to ask you is, is you're talking to these people who previously, or still maybe, don't want to look uh, at anything less than light. They don't want to look at the shadow. After you explain so uh, cogently uh, what this is all about, what are their response? What's their response after that? Do they sort of change their tune and decide to look from this perspective, or do they not? Yeah, not. No, I mean some people do, but a lot of people don't because they're so. You see, it it actually you see built in. It, well, I guess one way to think about it, there's a counter incentive to have this realization, to see our own complicity, because it induces a form of trauma. Because, you know, we then, if we think, if we have people out there to blame and the evil is out there, and we then unconsciously identify with, I'm just good and innocent and all that, Mm. very comfortable identity, and to all of a sudden see through that and to realize that the world is not the way we've been imagining and that we're actually complicit in the evil and that we have to take responsibility for our unconscious, darker impulses, that that can shake us up. That's really shattering, and that's the, that can be a form of PTSD. Mm. So people have to have the courage. It's sort of like when you're involved in a cult, you have to have the courage to see through how you've deceived yourself. And so there are some people who just aren't able to do that. And then to answer your question that you asked me before, I think the best way of any of, for any of us to be with them is just to embody that realization without trying to convince anybody of anything or mm-hmm. change their viewpoint, uh, but just for us to really embody it and to be in our heart and to really, as much as we're able to, to, you know, to be in touch with our true nature as compassion, because compassion is an expression of our true nature, I think that energetically really can have an effect. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And I also am a, a huge fan of the, but not fan, I shouldn't say, but uh, resonate, I should say, with the butterfly effect, because <laughs> that 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 is brilliant in showing how we do have an effect non-locally all the time yeah, so yeah. it you know again in asking that question I, I i try to um answer it for myself by a not ranting about certain ideologies that may or may not jive with another person i had to learn that by the way that took some time because you oh. feel so passionate about something you want something that you can see so clearly and others can't it can be frustrating but i learned to back back off of that and simply as you said embody to the best of my ability the very thing that i would like to see change in another um and know and trust that in this this thing that we call the butterfly effect it is having an effect maybe halfway around the world so, uh, yeah, that's- yeah, totally. And if I could just one image, a beautiful image that, that um, comes up. If you, if you have like um, crystal of, of like sugar and you just dissolve it in a glass of water, it'll, you know, each crystal will just dissolve and dissolve until you reach the saturation point. And then you add one more crystal of sugar and a crystal will just manifest in mm. the solution. 
And, you know, so any of us self-reflecting or owning our shadow or having the recognition of the dreamlike nature might be that grain of sugar that crystallizes a global awakening in our whole species. Mm-hmm. And then that's really, that's a true possibility. So that can be really inspiring for each of us because, you see, one of the dangers, and this is a Watiko ploy, is to get involved in, in feeling pessimistic. And, and then is if we get identified with the pessimistic viewpoint, we're then going to draw all the evidence, being like a dream, to support us in our viewpoint, which then entrenches us even more mm-hmm. in that viewpoint in a feedback loop. But the point is, is that, you know, the, the opposite of that is that if we have that, that feeling, wow, any of us, you know, self-reflecting in this moment, like you were saying, in a non-local way, could affect the, in, and not only could, but it is affecting, it's getting deposited into the collective unconscious in that moment. Mm-hmm. Beautifully said. And as you're describing all this, I, again, I'm looking at th- this gift curse duality, this wave particle duality that is existing, omnipresent all the time, that Watiko is clearly self-perpetuating. Um, it's the recurring dream. However, the moment you realize that A, it's a dream, and B, that you can change the course of the dream, it, it shifts. I want to read a quote. As we're winding down. I want to read a quote that you may be familiar with that always struck me um, as having significance in this regard. Did you, have you ever seen the movie Jacob's Ladder? With, um, uh, yeah, I did, a, a, like a whole number of years ago. It's, yeah. a, it's a pretty old movie, I think maybe even in the late 80s, maybe early 90s. But it, if you mm-hmm. remember, um, uh, is it Tim Robbins that play, plays the lead character of his, uh, this traumatized Vietnam vet? And he goes to this chiropractor who's played by Danny Aiello. But at the, without, spo- no, I, I'm not going to do a spoiler alert because I don't want to spoil the, the premise. But something that Danny Aiello, the chiropractor, says to the character played by uh, Tim Robbins has to do with something similar. It's about the fear of dying, but I think it's also a metaphor for something bigger. He says, the only thing that burns in hell is the part of you that won't let go of life, your memories, your attachments. They burn them all away, but they're not punishing you, he said. They're freeing your soul. He says, if you're frightened of dying and you're holding on, you'll see devils tearing your life away. But if you've made your peace, then the devils are really angels freeing you from the earth. Now, Mm -hmm. does that make sense in terms of this? Always it was profound for me. It's how you look at it. What it what it brings up for me, and it's what you had brought up something in the earlier part of our talk about like, what Tico is this this sort of misidentification of who we think we are, and that's really you know that is so true because what it is is that we then to the extent that we fall under the you know the whole like getting conned by what Tico, we then identify with like thinking that we're this egoic this point this this sort of like this self-encapsulated ego, which is like an entity, which we then grasp on and cling to and we defend and protect and try to sustain moment by moment. And all of our energy is getting invested in that process. And the, the thing which is amazing is that we don't even exist in that way that we're imagining ourselves to. So that's what, I, that's what it brings up, that whole scene from that movie of that, yeah, if we're still like, you know, if we're not letting go or seeing through, if we're still holding on to that, to that reference point and imagining and identifying that that's who we are, then that, that actually is like, you know, in Buddhism, that was the Buddha's realization that that's the cause of our suffering mm-hmm. and that that's the actual source of evil in our world. Like that process individually and collectively elaborates itself 
in and it will manifest in all the evil that we are playing out on each other. You know, and that's why in an earlier work I called what he go like you had mentioned malignant egophrenia or M E disease, me disease. Mm, and it's wow. a it's a misidentification of who we think we are. That's the root of Watiko. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant, compelling, important people. I urge you. I urge you to look into this. Look in. Look, look in. Look inside. We must at this juncture. I think we can fix a lot of what we're complaining about being out there by going in here. If you want to learn more about Watiko... Everyone, I urge you to go to Paul Levy's website, awakeinthedream.com, where so there are... Like, can I point out, it's it's actually, there's an N, it's A-W-A-K-E-N. You know, I, I said, oh, oh, he's going to, I think yeah. I'm going to be mis- yeah. <laughs> corrected here, awaken yeah. the dream. No, no. In, so, in, I'm going to let you say, you tell us. Awakeninthedream.com. Ah, awakeninthedream.com. I stand to be corrected. Yeah, no we, worries. We will have a link uh, that will, the correct link, by the way, right, okay. link to this post. So I apologize for that. But it, I've been there and it's chock full of so many resources, including lots of his great articles. And you can also get a copy of his book, Dispelling Watiko, Breaking the Curse of Evil. It's a must read. This is an exhaustive volume on this very disturbing and enlightening phenomenon. So I urge you to pick up a copy. Paul Levy, what can I say? Yeah, I, I, I'm going to tell you. I have called you publicly, by the way, one of the leading spiritual philosophers of our time. I'm proud to know you. Well, well, thank you so much. I just, I, I really appreciate that. I don't know what to say. Thank you. Well, thank you. And take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to Higher Journeys Radio. It's time to put the alpha, the bright star, the guiding spirit back into our lives. In understanding the dynamic of Watiko and to own the notion that we all participate in this illness of the mind is the first integral step in healing it, not just for ourselves individually, but for our planet. Watiko, as Paul describes it, is the shadow that has the ability to transform into light. But we must be the willing agents, the alchemists who turn lead into gold. If we are all creating this collective dream, then certainly we have the ability to create a new dream and bring our human condition back into the light. Thank you, as always, for tuning in to Higher Journeys Radio. Until next time, I'm your host, Alexis Brooks. Mm-hmm.